This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Our topic today is the power of zero. Homes that produce as much energy as they use have moved from fantasy to reality. Are net zero energy homes trophies for wealthy people? Are they within the reach of the middle class? We'll hear from a person who lives in a net zero home and ask him what kind of clothes he wears around the house. If net zero is not for you, We'll also hear tips for making your home more energy and water efficient. In the second half of the show, we'll talk trash. Oakland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and other California cities have set goals of eliminating all waste that goes into landfills. Is it really possible to recycle and compost all the mountains of junk we produce in our consumer lifestyles? We'll find out. First, Net Zero Homes. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three people from the frontier of cool homes. Anne Edminster is a green home consultant and author of Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet. Daniel Simons is a principal architect with David Baker Associates. And Sven Thiessen is owner of a net zero home in Palo Alto. Please welcome them to Climate One. Sven Thiessen, let's begin with you. What possessed you to want to pursue a net zero energy home? So as a chemical engineer and someone who's done a lot of climate work, I wanted to prove that you could have essentially your cake and eat it too. And that you could have in my, well, one of my first, my wife's requirement was it had to be beautiful. And so it was beautiful. And then I was, it has to be functional and comfortable and let's see how energy efficient we can make it. And so our small 5.9 kilowatt system powers the house. It also powers 10,000 miles of electric car, carbon-free, zero-emission driving. And it, the house uses roughly 25% of the energy of an average house in Palo Alto. So we have a small solar system, and it's extremely comfortable. Um, people don't notice, except when, in the summertime when it's really hot, they walk in and say, oh, this is really nice and cold, cool. You must have your air conditioning cranked. And I get to say with this wonderful grin, I don't have an air conditioning system. All I have is good building orientation, a heck of a lot of insulation, and some shading on the sunny side. That's it. Do you have to be like Jimmy Carter and wear uh, sweaters in the winter? So that was the whole point, was to be able to prove that we could have comfortable, affordable, functional, and that you wouldn't have to sacrifice anything. So no, I'm, I wear no shoes and t-shirt and shorts pretty much all year round inside. And it's nice and warm and we don't, again, we use 25% of the energy of a conventional house and it's all generated in excess by our solar panels and it's a, not a huge solar system. And Edminster, you wrote the book on net zero homes. Tell us about your home and do you have an 80 inch TV? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually we have a 
rather petite TV and can't quite even figure out how to use it these days. <laughs> my, my teenage son won't give us the answer, so we've given up. We now watch on the iPad. <laughs> so that, that's one of the measures that we take to reduce energy in our home. iPad versus a TV, okay. Right. Any, any other exotic features? Exotic. Uh, we, have, we have a living roof. Um, we do have a solar array. It's quite petite, 2.4 kilowatts. We are not at net zero yet. We're doing that sort of incrementally. So we have a few stages left to go. Um, most recent, um, Andy Wall, who you'll hear from later, actually helped get our attic ready for the installation of some New Zealand sheep's wool insulation. So that's a pretty fun thing. Both my kids want to climb in there and nap. Right. Uh, <laughs> is that expensive, sheep's wool from New Zealand? It is. There is a premium, but I was shielded from that fact by being an advisor to the company. Oh, inside deal. <laughs> okay. All right. So, all right. So, other, the rest of us have to settle for Levi's or something else. Okay. What's all um, matter priorities? Right. Uh, Daniel Simons, let's tell us about your your home and. Um, well, so I actually don't live in a net zero home, but we've designed a, a couple of them. Um, and the one that uh, we designed here in San Francisco is really quite small. I think that's one way. I mean, not that everybody has to live in a small home, but it's much easier to make a small home net zero. Um, so it's a 700 square foot house. Um, and then it also has a wood shop in it. We power the wood shop from a pretty small PV system. Um, I think the key with getting to net zero or just being being efficient is trying to figure out how to reduce the loads, like Sven was saying. Like the goal is really to make the buildings use as little energy as possible. I mean, any reduction that you can make, just you know, switching from an incandescent bulb to an LED bulb, or insulating your house, or upgrading the windows, all of these things, you know, incrementally reduce the energy consumption of the entire built environment. And um, when, you, when you get down really, really low, then it's easy to put a small PV system on the roof and power the whole thing. And Edminster, uh, we replaced the windows on our home, and my head started to ache with all the R factor. There's factors that measure the light that comes through and the energy that doesn't come through, and it was mind-boggling. And I was very motivated, geeky. It's like, I got to do this, right? I have to walk the walk. But it was very complex. How many people really want to bother with the complexity? And that's just one piece of a house, right? Changing the windows is no simple thing. It's true. I think right now, one of the unique opportunities we have is it's still very much an innovator's world, zero net energy. And therefore, the people who are willing to play are also willing to sort of absorb a certain amount of that geekiness. And they are, in effect, paving the path for the others in the future to sort of demonstrate what works, what's a good investment, what was maybe an uh, interesting idea, but not necessarily widely applicable. So we're in that process right now. All of us who are pioneering in this field are still kind of winnowing those ideas and identifying the ones that are sort of winners across the board. So what are some of the winners? Oh, well, sheep's wool insulation. <laughs> really good insulation. If you know yeah. the right people. Thank you. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, as Sven said, lots of really well installed. I think this is one of the things that is sort of unfortunate is some of the most effective things we can do are the least sexy. So really good job of air sealing, really good job of insulation installation. And that's just not glamorous, but it has 
tremendous paybacks in comfort, energy reduction, and so forth. Also reducing um, potential durability issues related to condensation and moisture. So there are a lot of good reasons to do it. Caulking doesn't get a lot of respect. We put uh, <laughs> so uh, solar panels on first because I think they're cooler and sexier and then did the, the ceiling of the garage, et cetera. And uh -huh. that's actually backwards, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think so. And I think, I, yeah, I think yeah. it's definitely, and I, I think that the, you know, you have to be a little bit more careful when you start really super insulating the building envelope because there are, you know, moisture management things that you have to take into account. And there are, you know, you when you really seal a building for air, you have to make sure that there's fresh air. But none of the technologies to do that are that cutting edge. I mean, it's stuff that people have been doing for years. It's just different from the conventional way that buildings are built in this country now. And so it is, it's just sort of shifting the paradigm slightly and thinking about what's valuable in a new home as being that it has to have, you know, continuous exterior rigid insulation and it has to have an HRV and it has to have these things which, you know, are really jargony and probably don't, you don't, you don't really need to know them as consumers. You more just need to know that it's possible and, and push the people who are building your house to, to look for them. Well, let's get some tips. We have Andy Wall here with us at Climate One. We're talking about net zero and super performance homes. Andy Wall is an energy consultant. He's gonna give us some tips for people who maybe wanna strive towards zero but not get there in one swoop. Andy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for speaking here at Climate One. Um, my wife and I, uh, we live in a retrofitted, uh, actually it's a net positive house. It actually produces more energy than what we consume, plus we drive some of our automobile on it. Uh, we've been in it about three years now. It's about a 28-year-old house. Uh, we have less sickness than what we did, less cold and flus, less allergy problems. Uh, my wife says there's at least 75% less dusting that goes on uh, because we don't open the house up at all. It's ventilated. It's two stories. It has two to three degrees difference from any room to any room, doesn't matter whether we heat cool or not. So great comfort in it. And I do, uh, I do training for PG&E uh, consulting for a variety of organizations. Uh, some of the things we should look at is we should have a goal, a real important goal that we, we want and we stick to it. Uh, we need to have a, a budget. Uh, it might be bigger than you would like, but we need the, the budget for this project. Uh, real important is our architects, our designers, our contractors, they need to be held accountable for what they're putting into our houses, which is not what's happening today. We need to keep um, ourselves accountable for what we plug into things and what we've chosen to do. And we need to hire the real professionals to do this. And sorry to tell you, there might only be about 100 or so in the state of California that can do true net energy houses uh, that are comfortable. And uh, joining those that have done the proper net zero uh, can do an amazing improvement to the quality of your life. Thank you. Thanks, Andy Wall. And Ed Minster, um, let's talk about where someone should go. I want to improve the energy efficiency in my home. Where do I go? Where do I start? Is this a softball for me to pitch my book? You can pitch your book. <laughs> but beyond your, other than your book, yes. Um, well, you know, as Andy said, I think there really is a relatively small cadre of folks who do have so how do genuine you know? expertise. So where do you know? I, 
I am a board member of the Net Zero Energy Coalition, and I think that's an excellent place to start. We are online at netzeroenergycoalition.com, and you can peruse our membership directory. That's a great place. We have folks all across North America, actually, and for people local to California, you're welcome to email me, and I can tell you all about everybody I know who's involved in this world. Daniel so. Simons, every architect these days claims to be green. How do you know who's really green and who's greenwashing? You know, it's... It, it is really hard to tell. I mean, I'll be honest. I think that there isn't, there isn't an architect out there who doesn't say that they know something about sustainability, and they probably do know something about sustainability. I think it's, it's like anything else that you're buying. Um, you have to do some research. You have to talk to the people who've worked with the architect. You have to you know, ideally go and see something that they've designed or built. And um, it, it's not easy yet. I think at some point... In the not-too-distant future, a lot of the things that we're talking about are going to be code minimums, and everybody's going to be doing them, and it's not going to be... You won't have to do any research. You'll just go and hire a contractor, and they're going to build you a net-zero home because that's the only way we build things. But when you're on the cutting edge, it does take a little bit more of your own energy and willpower and, um, and thoughtfulness. Sven Thiessen, let's talk about cost. This is perceived to be an elite thing for... Uh, people who got extra money, deep pockets. How much did you spend on your house? Uh, we spent the rough estimate is less than 5% and above and beyond what we would have paid for the house. So it's not a huge amount. Um, the way I look at it was an investment in green jobs because they spent a lot more time on the framing and they spent a lot more time putting in insulation. We spent a lot more time doing air checks, those sort of pressurized tests to make sure the building was extremely well sealed. All that caulking paid off. And um, I think people, you know, how much does a car cost? Well, you can buy a, a new car for 18000 or a half a million. What sort of car do you want? And so we wanted a home. It's only 2,200 square feet. There's four of us living in it. We wanted a reasonable home that was extremely comfortable, extremely functional, and still had an extremely small carbon footprint. And then the, the joy is we won. We did most of the things right. It is really comfortable. Daniel Simons, are these homes an elite thing only? Uh, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, how many people actually, you know, hire an architect and design and build their own home? You know, it's not, that's a pretty small percentage of the population. I mean, most people, I don't know, they rent a place or they buy one that already exists. So to a certain extent, it is elite. I mean, and I think that um, as we move into a more sustainable future. You know, single family homes are a thing that probably aren't the most sustainable model for living. I mean, we probably should be building higher density. We probably should be living more in cities. Um, and there is a point at which buildings get tall enough that it's actually really, I mean, I would say impossible for them to be net zero. You know, I mean, up to a six story building, maybe, but you know, when you start getting high rises, there's just not enough roof area to, power it with PVs. But that, like I was saying before, that doesn't mean that making those buildings super energy efficient isn't still a really good goal. And, um, and hopefully, you know, as we move forward into this more sustainable future, more people have the option of not going to some great effort to hiring an architect, but rather just picking the net zero home as the one that they buy or rent. And when that happens, I think it will be more accessible to, to everyone. Daniel Simons is a principal with David Baker Architects in San Francisco. We're talking about net zero homes at Climate One. 
uh, Ann Edminster, one of the critiques of net zero homes is that they are this suburban single family home, but you say that there's actually some urban examples and it's not just this sort of suburban home with lots of roof area for solar, and et cetera. Tell us about the urban application. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, one of our real rock stars in the Net Zero Energy Coalition is a, a man named Sean Armstrong who is developing multifamily affordable housing that is reaching net zero energy up in Arcata. So these are unit buildings with 2650 units. And Sean has been finishing these projects and reaching these goals for about the last three years. So, and one of our earliest projects here in the Bay Area was a zero lot line, very small townhome over in Oakland. Zero lot line means what? Means wall to wall, houses built right up next to each other. So it's not the sort of suburban castle in the moat model. Um, much more dense, even though it's a single family home, really different model. And on the cost issue, you know, uh, Sven Thiessen said 5%. Is that what people think about, you know, in terms of the cost premium for net zero or is it? I only wish that's what they thought about. There really is, I think, a very widespread thought that there's a dramatic premium for zero net energy. My belief and my experience is that there is no cost premium because any commissioned project, you're given a charge and a budget. And you either meet that charge within the budget or you don't. And if you don't, you're generally off the job. So all of the projects that I've worked on zero net energy hasn't been achieved accidentally. It's been part of the initial design charge. So we meet it within budget. Doesn't cost extra any more than the kitchen sink would cost extra if you were being asked to remodel a kitchen. Right, but as, as uh, Daniel said earlier, very few Americans these days start from scratch. They probably buy a house or remodel a house. How about, how about the upgrade path, getting to zero with an existing building? Yeah. You're doing it incrementally. Is that slow and painful and costly? It's slow and costly. Personally, I think it's really fun. <laughs> I wouldn't call it painful at all. But um, yeah, there has to be a certain commitment. You know, we're doing it for philosophical reasons. On the other hand, um, I'm a great believer in what I call opportunistic remodeling, which is if you're thinking about remodeling for whatever reason, there are always ancillary opportunities that you may not be aware of that you can take advantage of if you're already planning to do X, then you can do Y at the same time. And, but the only way you're gonna know that, this goes back to Andy's comment about who are those trained professionals? And as Daniel said, caveat emptor. So yeah, it, it really does require working with a skilled team to identify those opportunities. Let's go to our lightning round. We have a couple of quick questions for, for each of you, starting with uh, Anne Edminster. Energy-efficient homes have stable internal temperatures, eliminating the need for toys such as Nest thermostats that tinker with home heating and cooling. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sven Thiessen, hydrogen cars have a bright future. No. <laughs> Sorry. Am I allowed to say more? Sorry, the chemical we're, engineer in me says just no, economic, <laughs> environmental, the whole. It's we, just we, stupid. Ask me later. <laughs> okay. Tell, tell that to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. Uh, uh, Sven Thiessen, net zero homes are showpieces for rich people. No, on both accounts. I, okay. I would love for you guys just to come and visit. It's only 2,200 square feet. Look out for the, we got two rats living in the house, pets, and uh, four <laughs> chickens, two kids. Don't mind the mess. I don't think so. We had a choice. 
we could have something that was a little bit fancier and a little bit bigger, but we chose to be a lot more comfortable. When we did the sound check, he listed the chickens ahead of his children. He switched it. So um, <laughs> Daniel Simons, uh, the well-building standard is designed for wealthy hypochondriacs. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Simons, the building industry does a terrible job managing waste from construction sites. No. Had some yeses in the audience, but no up here on stage. Last one for Daniel. Gardens and other green features are too expensive to build into low-income housing. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, we're talking about net zero homes here at Climate One, uh, and we've got a few more questions before we go to our audience questions. Um, and Edminster, what are some of your pet peeves for the general way that American homes are designed? Mm. Oh, boy, it's a long list. Top three. <laughs> Top three really elaborate roof designs. Um, sort of egregious applique features that are intended to beautify, but actually just kind of, well, I, I'm, just, I'm looking for a polite term. Um, <laughs> they cause problems in terms of durability, thermal performance, comfort, and so forth, and add a lot of cost that could be invested in those aspects of performance instead. That's a big pet peeve. And also the placement of electrical plugs? Oh, this is, yeah, that's kind of on the more trivial, eccentric <laughs> side of Why me. are they where they are? Why are they 12 inches from the floor? So you have to crawl under the furniture with the spiders and the dust bunnies if you want to actually control some of your electric devices. That's just silly. No one's got an answer. Because <laughs> um, how about dashboards? Some of these uh, sophisticated buildings have dashboards. Do, does an energy dashboard really improve the performance of the humans living in it? Uh, really interesting question. So there have been a lot of studies that look at that, and the meta studies that sort of look at all of the studies are very inconclusive. They say, Meh, you know, maybe it actually increases energy use minus two percent, up to twenty percent improvement. My theory is, though, because as I mentioned earlier, we're in this innovator early edging into early adopter stage that we have an opportunity with zero net energy homes now that our audience for those products are like Prius drivers and are going to be interested. So I really believe that a dashboard should be in every zero net energy home, especially right now, because you mentioned that we're at the forefront of cool homes. I, I really like you for saying that. Um, it will be cool. We are the cool people, and we will make it cool so other people will want to be cool, too. <laughs> These people look cool. I mean, they look cool to me. Santisen, um, dashboard in your house? Uh, no. Don't need one? Um, it just fell apart. Don't need one. Or it's not... Not necessary. What are we going to do? Change out another LED light for another LED, better LED light? Right now, No. I would rather have my daughter better potty trained to, 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 to poop at the back of the toilet as opposed to the front. We've got these dual flush toilets. <laughs> TMI, dude. Yeah. That's yeah. a little, yeah, I mean, I've, yeah. I don't know where to go yeah. with that one. So um, I'm gonna, gonna go yeah, to Daniel Simons and ask about water. Uh, net zero water homes, uh, net zero water buildings. Is that achievable? Is that real? Uh, I mean, it's totally achievable. Um, I think there's there are many more hurdles to net zero water than there are to net zero energy. Um, 
There's a lot of, you know, public health issues associated with black water recycling. And I mean, there's, if you want a net zero water house, you have to be really dedicated. Um, but they're, they're out there. And again, I think that achieving net zero is, I don't know, it's not irrelevant. It's not, it's not as important as it is to really think about having super water efficient homes. We're talking about net zero buildings at Climate One. Uh, Daniel Simons is a principal with David Baker Architects. Our other guest is Ann Edminster, author of Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet, and Sven Thiessen, owner of a net zero home in Palo Alto. I'm Greg Dalton. So let's go to uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you very much. I'd like to also express the opportunity for low-income multifamilies complexes to be able to achieve net zero. I have the great privilege of working with the Third Baptist Garden Inc. group that owns the Frederick Douglass Haynes Apartments here in San Francisco, 105 units built in 1970. They are, were built to 1970 standards. They're falling apart now, but our group is taking the net zero approach. We're putting 285 kilowatts on the roof, 3,500 square feet of thermal. Uh, we're doing radiant panels for heating, HRVs. Our dashboards are going to become critical because we're taking all the meters out. But the challenge really becomes Bingo. the one of our interface with the utilities around us. PG&E, are they going to help? The utilities in terms of water, are they going to help? How do we work with the utilities to create the climate where we're able to achieve these kinds of uh, opportunities. Thank you. The utilities, who'd like to tackle that? Ann Edminster? Sure. Um, you asked earlier about slow, costly, and painful. <laughs> um, to be fair, the utilities are really stepping up, I think, but the challenge is often finding the right voice. So the utilities, I would say, one of my larger critiques is that they tend to be very siloed. And so it's oftentimes identifying the right person in the utilities who can provide some assistance. And that just requires navigating the maze. So I, I think it's the, the lesson is be persistent. Not yeah, very customer-friendly organizations. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Uh, thanks. I'm expanding the definition of home, home from uh, a single family home to like home of kids, meaning schools, kindergartens, home of uh, sick people, hospitals, uh, home of inmates, uh, prisons, and home of the worker bees, like being the office buildings. So I'm just curious if you have any examples of like uh, net zero in that like arena, so if like the larger uh, buildings. Institutional owners have a big incentive to save energy on things. Daniel, there's Simons? a great um, <clears throat> the West Berkeley Library is net zero energy. If anybody wants to go, just opened up. It's a really great building, and they have a they have a dashboard. Um, but uh, but it's a it's a really nice library as well. There's also um, a manufacturer of modular um, classrooms that just came out with a net zero energy module, so that when you're doing the modulars on your local elementary school. They don't have to be those horrible little white boxes that they usually buy. They can be really nice and um, have no energy use. So yeah, I think there is there, there are tons of examples out there. Interesting. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Thank you. Um, so many people in San Francisco rent, including myself and my three housemates and I pay our utility bill. And in this situation, our landlord has no incentive to retrofit our building, which is an old Victorian building. So my question is, have you thought about this dilemma of decoupling 
and is there any way to address it? And that Ben Stern comes up with solar as well, but uh, very important part of the population here in the city and around the Bay Area. Really challenging question. Um, I think that there are certain things that the occupant does control, all of the stuff we call plug, plug loads, so you may or may not have the opportunity to decide about what appliances you're gonna use. When we ha do a better job with building enclosures, we find that increasingly the loads are dominated by things like electronics. Um, when you don't have the opportunity to have an impact on the enclosure, it's a little bit tough, but there's an interesting phenomenon. Lawrence Berkeley Lab did a study a couple of years ago where they looked at 10 so-called deep energy retrofits. So this essentially is what Daniel was talking about earlier without the solar necessarily, but we're really working on getting the loads down. And one of the interesting conclusions that they uh, arrived at was that there are two primary prongs to the strategy for achieving zero net energy, one being behavioral and the other being technological. And so depending on which case study they were looking at, the solutions were dominated by either the technological or the behavioral approaches. So I'd say as a renter, you're kind of left with the behavioral as your primary strategy, unfortunately. So, but there are no zero net energy buildings without zero net energy occupants. Last question, welcome to Climate One. Hello, thank you. I have the opposite of the uh, landlord tenant problem. I have a great landlord and she would like to do these things, but I receive all the benefits and she's been gradually, painfully retrofitting. <laughs> Is, are there any arrangements happening or can you perceive, can you imagine ways that the incentives could shift so that landlords really do have an advantage to doing this where the tenant receives so much of the benefit? I mean, if, if a landlord improves the building envelope and they're paying the utility bills, don't they benefit from better windows and ceiling? Yeah, but a lot of, of times they don't pay the utility right. bills. They don't pay, the tenants yeah. pay the utility bills, yeah. so there's a problem. It's I don't a, care because you're paying, you don't care because I'm paying. How do we solve that? It's, it's a really, I mean, it's a, it's a huge issue. And we design a lot of multifamily housing and the whole, you know, incentive metering thing that has come up a couple of times is really difficult to navigate um, for a number of reasons. Like photovoltaic systems are really difficult, are not difficult, but it's difficult to work with PG&E to allow you to put one on a roof and to, and to feed, you know, 15 or 20 or 100 units in the building because um, they like to just go back into one meter, which is usually uh, not for the residents. Um, so it's, it's a difficult thing. I mean, I think that there are economic models out there that can show where if you're renting um, and you can prove that you're, the utility burden for that renter is lower, that the rent can be higher. Um, and even when affordable housing, that's the case. So... There are ways that it could incent people, but um, in an existing situation like you described, um, it would be very difficult to do. I mean, maybe you could figure out some way of splitting the difference with your landlord, you know, where if you could show that you save 20 bucks a month, you give them 10 or something like that. We're at, we have to wrap here on that, this portion. We've been hearing from Daniel Simons, principal at David Baker Architects, and Ed Minster, a green home consultant and author of Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet, and Sven Thiessen, owner of a net zero home in Palo Alto. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank this group for this first portion of Climate One. Let's thank them right now.
We're back now to go dumpster diving. California <laughs> creates an average of four and a half pounds of waste a day. San Francisco and other cities want their residents to cut that to zero by recycling, composting, and being more mindful about what people consume. More than dirty sidewalks are at stake. Landfills are a big source of methane, the potent greenhouse gas that is amplifying severe weather, including the drought in California. We're joined now by three people at the forefront of slimming waste lines. Kevin Drew is a residential <laughs> zero waste coordinator at the San Francisco Department of Environment. Lauren Hennessy is outreach manager at Stanford Sustainable Stanford, and Diana Deem is a sustainability consultant and founder of Trash on Your Back Challenge. Please welcome them to Climate One. So Diana, let's begin with you. You were doing an interview a few years ago, and you came up with this idea spontaneously of walking around with trash on your back. What prompted such a moment of insanity? It was a definite moment of insanity, which turned into something pretty cool. Yeah. I was um, interviewing MIT at the time. I do a radio show as well, and, and uh, it's all about solutions for the planet. And they were talking about this climate simulator tool. Anyway, one of the guys on the show was so excited. So I had to stop the show. I go, what is your passion? Why are you so excited? His name's Drew Jones. He's amazing. He's a wonderful guy. He, he's the executive director for MIT's climate simulation. Anyway, so he came back. He goes, back in 1989, I was at Dartmouth College. And a bunch of radical buddies and I decided to go out and see what our impact was. So they walked around with their trash for a week. And I said, you know, Drew, that sounds like an idea that needs to be recycled. And he's like, you'll do it, Ty? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. What the heck? So the next day, I called about 17 really good friends. One is um, Matt Bogosian, who is um, the pollution prevention guy for US EPA. I said, hey, Matt, will you carry your trash in back for five days? So he said yes. He was the first early adopter. And what ended up happening, we had 17 people in 16 states the first year. And that was four years ago. We did it on Earth Day, and every year we have an annual Earth Day thing, and this again was four years ago, and we would just talk about the learnings. So anyway, um, the first year we did um, have quite an amazing turnout. The second year we had about 2,500 people from around the world, 27 states and um, six countries. So when you see Israel and Australia, and you see all these little kids getting on board, we're really trying to help everyone understand that we can create a zero waste world. And we can do it. Um, you mentioned the 4.4 pounds of trash average per person. Well, we were able to knock that down to 0.8 pounds per day, right? Just by doing this, you, you get really, you don't want to carry a lot of stuff on your back because it's really heavy. So you, you think of ways and then you become very competitive. So it's turned into this very interesting thing. And, and kids are just grabbing onto this like, in amazing ways, it's a math it's a math issue if you think about it. You know, weighing things, and and measuring things, and and it's also a, a science issue. So STEM is playing a huge role in this, and um, so yeah, I, I'll stop there. Great, uh, we'll get back. <laughs> I'm to so the excited other about it. <laughs> Keep uh, going, uh, Lauren Hennessy. You created a video that caught our attention, uh, as sort of a parody of a Megan Trainer video all about the base. So tell us how you came up with that video and what were you trying to do to inspire college kids to be more mindful about their waste at Stanford? Well, also I'll point out that it's not just college kids. Um, we have a significant population of staff and faculty on campus, so it really needs to pertain to a wide audience. Um, so I really sought to kind of 
come, come up with something that would just catch. Um, and I really have Wait, to say. But do professors know who Megan Trainer is? You would not. I'm not kidding, they do. Okay. People right. are singing okay. this song. Um, but I have to be honest, it really started when a friend sent me a YouTube link of a bunch of frat boys lip syncing to a Taylor Swift song. And this video had half a million hits on YouTube. And I, it, I was just sitting there thinking how they're not even doing anything. They're just mouthing the words to the song. There must be a way to get people talking about environmental and sustainable actions in the same kind of fashion. So it kind of struck me that music is this grand communicator that a lot of people don't really take advantage of. And I think it's been a crucial point that's missing in environmental communication. We're going to hear just a little riff of this uh Video, uh, this is a no riff at Stanford. Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste at Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste at Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste. Thanks. So a video riffing on a pop tune. What impact did that have, Lauren Hennessy, at Stanford? It, it, well, I'm here today, aren't I? Yeah, right. We, <laughs> we found you on the internet because of uh, this video, yes. Um, so I, I'm the... Uh, video today on YouTube had close to 5,000 hits, which is 100 times greater than any of the other videos that were entered into the competition. Um, we far exceeded our waste minimization than in the competition than in years past, and it was uh, we doubled our participation in the competition than last year. So it uh, really went far in as far as spreading awareness. Make make it fun. Um... <laughs> Kevin, let's talk about the city of San Francisco, what has a zero waste goal. Where is San Francisco? Is zero waste really possible? Well, it's a very interesting question, very, very difficult goal that we've set for ourselves. It's very aspirational when we set it. Uh, some of us who were in the business at the time said that's a little bit aggressive, but uh, you, can't, you can't get halfway there. You've got to just go for zero. And if we get to 99, that's doing really well. But what, what your guest just talked about was exactly the kind of spreading that's got to happen. It's got to happen to people getting charged up about it and carrying their trash on their back. It's got to happen to college kids and the kids on the uh, the other folks on the campus to find a way to to get to zero waste. It's going to take a million little ways to get there. It's it's like the same. It's like the organism that we are and the organism that the planet is. It takes lots of little pieces to really get everything done. You can see the big garbage truck driving by, but the bacteria in your gut is doing just as much to keep your system going as that garbage truck, and it's everything in between. So zero waste is really a, a beautiful kind of a biological construct that we still have to invent. We don't know what it is yet. Uh, everybody's asking us, you know, uh, how are you going to get there? Do you have a, a precise plan? No, we're making it up as we go along, frankly. <laughs> and for God's sakes, yep. let's get out there and do it. I mean, that's, that's what we've just seen here. Specific question. I remember being in Starbucks a couple of years ago and seeing on a printed on a uh, napkin that you know, we care about the environment and waste, et cetera. And then I looked for a place to recycle that napkin at Starbucks mm -hmm. and I couldn't find one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So does the city of San Francisco require businesses to have receptacles for compost and recycling and that they're actually in a place that a human can see? Yes, we do. We, we, we require that. We, is it perfectly implemented? No. But it's, we're getting there. And actually, Starbucks is one that we've worked a lot with. I think we need to get further with them because they, are, they have a lot of control. They have, they have a lot of social ethic in a lot of their business so that they could be a tremendous leader if they would make their lids and their stirs compostable along with their cups and take some of the plastic out of the lining of their cup. 
pretty much everything in the store would be compostable. Tell us where uh, the, the stream of compost in San Francisco, if someone puts something in the compost bin at home mm -hmm. or at the office, where does it go? Tell Where's us briefly the life sure. of a compost. It, 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 gets, it gets consolidated into bins in your house or your business, and it gets picked up by our ecology truck uh, and taken down to the transfer station down by Candlestick Park, where it's consolidated into a, a big 20-ton uh, transfer trailer which goes about, there are now 700 tons of organic material being collected every day in San Francisco. And most of it is transported either to Jepson Prairie Organics out near Dixon or to uh, Grover Compost Facility out near Merced, uh, where it's turned into compost. Of those 700 tons, about, you end up with about 350 tons of finished compost. There's a tremendous water reduction because most of our food, most of our compost, most of our organics is water. So that's, that's a short story of where it goes right now. And then, but what happens to it after that? Ah, so so does, does it come back to the as not, fertilizer? Not so, not so much, uh, because we don't need so much compost here in San Francisco. It's primarily sold to uh, vineyards, uh, golf courses, organic farms. Uh, they like this compost. It's a, it's a very rich compost because it has a, a lot of uh, meat and bones and other things. Most composts are tend to be agricultural in nature, like from uh, leftover crops or leftover... Uh, agricultural products, and you don't have, they're sort of one-dimensional. So this, uh, we call it four-course compost because it has a little bit of every course and meal in it, uh, and it, it's a very rich, rich uh, product because of that. Does San Francisco get paid for its compost? Is no, well, we don't get paid. It, it's, it's part of, uh, I'm with the Department of the Environment, and we, set the, we work with the Department of Public Works to set the rates for the garbage in San Francisco. And the, the, the value of the compost is included along with the value of the aluminum, the value of everything else. It all just pushes together to make one big pot, and then we divide it out and come up with your individual bill. Kickback from the trash company. I got it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Lauren Hennessy, composting at Stanford? Uh, composting at Stanford is, it goes to a Newby Island facility, so that's mm -hmm. actually across the yeah. bay. And this is an industrial facility. We actually have a pretty high uh, ability to accept composting, but it is a voluntary composting program right now. So the buildings on campus actually have to elect to, to, to participate at a building-wide level. So unless you have that champion who's willing to do it, mm -hmm. or um, there is an opportunity with the Recycle Mania campaign, we actually gave an individual the opportunity to become a compost captain for their floor. Um, so it is on a voluntary basis right now. It's not a mandatory composting program. The Recycle Mania campaign ended this week, and Stanford came in at 78. I didn't see Cal on the list. I might have missed it. I, I'm not just saying. Uh, San Francisco State, number 13. So how do you feel about that? Um, I got to tell you, the big one for me that really hurt was that Harvard beat us in the uh, gorilla competition because we actually talked some trash uh, to about Harvard, Harvard yeah, in, in the video. In the, yes, so, right? so that one was the one that was really hurtful. But I have to say that we actually increased our standings in every single category from the previous year. So although we weren't necessarily number one, we have increased. Diana Deem, you're from Orange County. You know, how much composting is happening in Orange County? Still getting, it's not there yet. Yeah. Not Kevin Drew, yet. why not? Why, why don't well, we it's, it's Cost, is it? It, it's, it? it is a certain amount of, it's just really political will. I mean, when you think about garbage or trash, the trucks are there, they drive around, they pick it up. I, I like to tell, tell people, it's just about driving it to a different location. It's right. in the same truck. It's, it weighs about the same. Um, I, there are some programs in Orange County that uh, friends of ours have started 
Stephanie Barger and sure. Zero West uh, group down there, and they focused on restaurants and, and grocery stores first because that's what we did. It's just where the concentration is, and you don't have to drive around and pick up a thimbleful. You can pick up a lot in, in, in a restaurant and a, and a uh, uh, produce store, and then, you, and then you can kind of expand from there. So there's many good examples like that, and it's happening. Uh, there's more happening than you know because the industrial people don't want to pay to throw it into landfill. That's very expensive. Right. You can pay less and go to a compost facility, and you avoid all those meth that, that methane. So when I'm at SFO and I see the bin that says recycled off-site, I go, right. yeah, right. Mm. Actually, really? Very good story there. Actually, uh, South San Francisco Scavenger just built this, the second uh, anaerobic digester. It's called a dry anaerobic digester. It's kind of like a barn. And they take that material, they, get, they, they sort out the contaminants that people do, and take the organics and put it in, in, a, in a lump. They don't compost it. They put it into a, like a barn, close the doors, and let it sit there for 21 days. They sprinkle a little bit of uh, kind of an, uh, an, an enzyme that helps stimulate it, but you get basically rotting going on in that pile. And they pull off the methane. After 21 days, they pull it out, and then they compost what's left. It's a very interesting technique, different than the uh, wet anaerobic digestion that people may be familiar with at sewage treatment plants. An anaerobic being without oxygen? Right, right. Okay. Kevin Drew is Residential Zero Waste Coordinator in San Francisco. Our other guests today at Climate One are Lauren Hennessy, Outreach Manager at Sustainable Stanford, and Diana Deem, a radio host and founder of Trash on Your Back. We'll be right back after this break. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Many companies have started using disposable products made from plant-based plastics. Will that help reduce the trash on our collective backs? Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products, was our guest in 2014. He warned that even biodegradable plastics aren't as earth-friendly as we'd like to think. Bioplastics as a whole can give people, consumers, a false sense of responsibility, and I think that's very important. This plastic that I'm holding in my hand, which is an ordinary drink cup made out of a, a bioplastic, PLA in this case, when people use these things at a concert or a place like this and they throw it in the trash, People think that this thing is going to biodegrade, and it doesn't. It's going to be there decades or centuries later, just like the red solo cup, okay? Because, you know, as, as was said, it needs an industrial compost. It needs heat and moisture in order to break down. And so I think that's really dangerous because there's millions of these things around right now, and people think, oh, it's biodegradable. I'm just going to chuck it. And it perpetuates the single-use uh, behavior of using plastics and chucking them away when really what we've got to do is we've got, if we're going to use something like this, we've got to pair it with the ability to get all of it back. Adam Lowry of Method Products, speaking with Climate One in 2014. This has been a Climate One Minute. Now let's get back to Talking Trash with Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, we're going to go to our lightning round. Diana, Deem, this is yes or no. You are a closet hippie. Yes. <laughs> you, you have gone dumpster diving. Yesterday. I have. Okay. Uh, Lauren Hennessy, pizza left over from frat parties makes good compost. Yes. <laughs> Stanford students prefer weed grown with solar power. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Kevin Drew, as mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom started the city's pioneering composting program. 
As lieutenant governor, he has a lot of time on his hands and could make a good compost cop. Yes. <laughs> a compostable cup or fork thrown into a landfill will biodegrade back into the soil. Yes or no? Not uh. no. Okay, we got a list here. It's okay to put the following items in the compost bin in San Francisco. Meat. Yes. Bones. Yep. Clamshells. Yes. Clamshell, you mean the... You mean from clams? Or Real the clams, that, not, not the, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. yeah. Clamshells, <laughs> clam shells, yes. Pistachio shells. Yes. Paper salad containers. Yeah. Dog poo. No. Okay. All right, that ends our lightning round. <laughs> Can um, we talk about the difference between biodegradable and compostable? Good because point. Because this yeah, is it's... very frustrating for me, and I yeah. must say I've been trying to purchase compostable balloons for an event that we're having, and yeah. the amount of people who will say that they have something that is compostable, and then when you say compostable or biodegradable, and they're not quite sure, is astounding. But that's an important Confusing labels in biodegradable, yeah. like, I mean, in a thousand years? Yeah, sure. Yeah, biodegradable doesn't mean anything. Compostable is a very strict standard with an yeah. ASTM certification. And we had to go at legislation passed in California to require that word compostable mean what it means, and that biodegradable doesn't mean anything. And you see biodegradable on so yeah. many things yeah. now, so... Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask Lauren Hennessy and then Kevin Drew, uh, what impact does commodity prices have on the, in the economics of recycling? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. First, Lauren Hennessy. Pretty significant. Um, so we, different from San Francisco, we actually do get paid for the uh, tonnage that we send to recycling and composting. So commodity prices, if we're able to, our paper, for instance, is um, pretty pristine in a university setting. So we get a very high rate for our paper. We say we pay twice if you throw it something in the landfill, because not only are you paying to landfill it, but you're also losing mm. the cost that you would receive back in payment for your goods. So, so there's cash in the waste. So. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, I, commodity prices make a huge difference, uh, and they always they they will just continue to be that way. It's just not uh, anything you can do about it. I I think uh, what we really need to see is is uh, certain things like organics and other products become commodities. I think that's what's mm. happening with organics. It was perceived as and trash. And when you say organics here, you're talking about food and other things, yes. not organic milk like we get at the grocery store, right? Right. It's, organic is, really means anything with, or, you know, well, it doesn't mean. It's, I, guess, <laughs> I mean, you know, petroleum is organic when, when you get right down to it. But what we usually mean is something that was alive recently. Uh, that can be <laughs> I can see some oil, hundred, some oil last, companies are going to use that clip. Years, right? They are. <laughs> oil companies are going to, you're going to be in some oil company ads here. They're pretty, uh, um, Diana Deem, a lot of kids, certain generations, learned recycling from their parents. Maybe the current kids are learning composting the way you and I learned recycling. Mm -hmm. But tell us how kids are getting involved in your campaign. Well, you know, it's interesting. When you, 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 one of the things I love to say is, is love them, educate them, and get the heck out of the way. Kids get it. What I'm always amazed at is these K through 12 students, they, they are fearful. They're, they know that there's an issue, right? And it's thanks to our teachers, it's thanks to our parents, it's thanks to the messaging that we're getting out there. I think media is so important to get this message out there. We've, we've had some kids come back with some amazing statements on what they've learned in just collecting their trash to understand what their own personal impact mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Then what happens, which is really interesting, they go to their parents and they say, you know what, mommy, daddy, we're only gonna buy compostable, biodegradable, mm. or, or recycled products. That's the power of the pocketbook that these kids are getting. It's pretty interesting. 
Let's talk about uh, another institution that's getting it. You say that the Super Bowl was really zero waste. Talk about professional sports briefly. You mentioned the Mariners earlier. Uh, one of your friends is doing a super green stadium for the Atlanta Falcons. Yes. So let's talk about super, uh, the professional sports, which really has a big influence on pop culture. Huge. And that's like the music and the sports and the you know doing something crazy like carrying a trash in your back. But one of the things about when we first started, Scott Jenkins, he was the um, operations director for, or VP or something, for um, the Seattle Mariners. And if you think about a stadium, it's a city in itself, right? Mm. City in itself. So he was able to start down the path. He also co-founded the Green Sports Alliance. He's on my board, which I'm so thankful to have him, because he sees the, the, the fan engagement opportunity here with sports. But the Seattle Mariners became zero waste three years ago. No, I'm sorry, 98% zero waste. So they go back in their supply chain, they look at what they're buying, and then they'll take that, and when you go into the stadium, whether it's a hot dog, it's going to be compost mm -hmm. compostable, whether it's a, a container, the supply chain now says everything, nothing goes to landfill. So Major League Sports is getting Major League involved, <laughs> and they're getting very competitive. Scott left and went to the Atlanta Falcons, and he's designing and building, getting back to what, we talked, what you guys talked about earlier, was how do we make a net zero stadium? And how do we make it 100% zero waste? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot happening. And when you go in there as a fan, you experience that feeling, plus they're making money at it, right? This, this whole trash on your back piece, you know, 4.4 pounds of trash per day, right? We knocked that down to 0.8 pounds per day. Just take 50%, that's an 82% reduction. The US spends $12 billion, and, and expected $12 billion a year in waste management, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We take 50%. In, in one week, we were able to knock that down, and it's a $6 billion, you know, 50%, $6 billion opportunity for the nation. Wouldn't we rather put that in schools and, and compost facilities mm -hmm. and, That's, you know... We're talking about net zero waste at Climate One. Our guests are Kevin Drew, Residential Zero Waste Coordinator with San Francisco Department of Environment, Lauren Hennessy, Outreach Manager with Sustainable Stanford, and Diana Deem, founder of Trash on Your Back and a radio host. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. One quick question. Uh, you had mentioned early on the, the idea of getting to zero waste. I mean, I know that during World War II, the country got to essentially zero waste because it was needed for the war effort. Does anybody have any, any thoughts on what the the inclusion of plastics into our consumer system, how that affects the possibility of that even happening again. So Kevin Drew, there's all these plastics, all these numbers on them that people my age can't see. Uh, we don't know what they mean. Yeah. So, and we don't know if compostable is really compostable. It's, life, it's very different than the 1940s. We didn't have McDonald's and a lot of things then. So. Right. No, I mean, actually, it, I was born in 1952, and I kind of I feel like all the plastics that's ever, plastics only existed in my lifetime, and all the plastic that's been made in my lifetime is still here. It's either in the ocean, it's on the ground, or it's been incinerated, it's in the air in, in particle form. It is a real, it is a, a tremendous challenge. On the other hand, it is recyclable. I mean, it is a product that could be, once separated, can be dealt with. Um, I think we got to stop using it for 30 seconds in a, you know, in a plastic bag and throwing it away or five minutes in a, in a bottle that, that will last 5,000 years. Uh, so that is one of the big challenges. But I think, I think people are on to plastic, really. Uh, California and, and has done tremendous things in the last few years. And San Francisco has helped lead the way with that, with plastic bag bans and 
plastic materials in, in food service being banned. Uh, so I, it, it's a long ways off, but I think it's still, we've got to get there. Uh, and you're seeing, again, the kids lead the way. California is in a drought. We're talking about water at, at pretty much all of our Climate One programs. Diana Deem, mm -hmm. you have this idea, I think you actually did it, of no water for a day. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I, I have these 10 planetary challenges, and I sleep <laughs> awake at night thinking about different crazy ideas to come out and carry your trash or really bring it home, right? How do we really bring it home? So I did. I just decided one day I'm not going to have any water for a day. No shower, no coffee. You know, I brushed my teeth with just toothpaste, you know. And I wanted to feel what it felt like, and it felt horrible, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you but if you think about it, you couldn't even have, no, oh. I said until the next day. But you know what I did do? I started, you know, grapefruits. That was my mm -hmm. way that mm -hmm. I could get liquid in mm -hmm. my body. Yeah. But it makes you really think about, um, mm. you know, what our, what our liquid is. The other one was um, that, that is about to be introduced, and I'll let it out here, is uh, no flush Fridays. UC Irvine, uh, my dear friend, Bill Cooper, he's, a, he's the Urban Water Institute um, director there. He and I got into this incredible conversation on air about what if we just didn't flush the toilet for one day? What would, that, what would happen? Seriously. And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, we could do that. <laughs> there, it, it, you know, or put a rock or a brick in your, in your, in your toilet. Mm -hmm. Back. Yep. The tank, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and see the difference. Yeah, so, so those are the two challenges that I think that we should do. But the, the no water for a day, really try that. It's hard. Welcome, people, to, uh, to do that. We have time for one last question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. I had a question about regulations, possibly federal regulations, so that things are more uniform across the country, because it's one thing to teach kids and families how to separate their garbage and compost in the Bay Area, you go somewhere else, there's entirely different standards. I'm wondering if there's anything being worked on at the federal level. Kevin Drew? Well, actually, uh, <clears throat> at the federal level, I haven't heard specifically that, though I did, a, a, a colleague of ours here, Lisa Gauthier from Matter of Trust, is actually in Paris, pitching the idea of a global unif unif uniform color scheme for our trash stream, for our resource stream, because it really is a resource stream. So, I mean, it's, it's out there. I think it's, it's something that uh, we just aren't quite there yet in this country, but uh, we should bring it up at EPA. I'll tell Jared. <laughs> we have to uh, end it there. We've been talking about zero waste and zero homes at Climate One. You can hear podcasts of this and other programs on the Climate One website, climateone.org. We've been hearing from Diana Deem, founder of Trash on Your Back and a radio host, Lauren Hennessy, outreach manager at Sustainable Stanford, and Kevin Drew, who works with the San Francisco Department of the Environment. Thank them for coming to Climate One today. <laughs>